Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Since the day dear Father Job introduced me to the art of making meaningful marks on a piece of paper, the power of those scribbled words has enthralled me. In childhood, I decided to record the adventures of my family, renowned in both Russia and the lands beyond, but I never believed I might have a story worth telling. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to C.P. Leslie, my New Books Network colleague, who has hosted new books in historical fiction for over a decade. Her fifth book in the Songs of Steppe and Forest series is Song of the Storyteller, another sweeping 16th century saga centering on the early Russian aristocracy and the surrounding Tatar tribes that intermingled with Russians for several centuries. In Moscow, Lyuba Koshkina's ambitious father has put her forward as a potential bride for the grand prince who is about to be crowned as Ivan, later known as Ivan the Terrible, first Tsar of Russia. Lyuba has just turned 16 and has just crossed paths with the man she's loved since she was a girl but he's the son of her brother-in-law, and neither her father nor the church will allow them to wed. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. So I loved reading the Songs of Steppe and Forest series. Can you explain your interest in that part of Russian history? Also, you've got at least five more centuries to cover until today. How far do you plan to go? Well, I don't plan to go out of the 16th century because that is really my uh, expertise. Well, there's one exception. There's one book that I may write someday, uh, which would be long before the 16th century, but I'm not going to come into the modern era. Um, I studied, uh, when I did my my dissertation in Russian history, my thing was a uh, book about household life in the time of Ivan the Terrible, uh, which I later published with Cornell University Press. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, that is kind of the background to all of my novels. Uh, But when I decided to write fiction, I wanted to focus particularly on the childhood of Ivan the Terrible because it was a great time for fiction. Uh, When he came to the throne, he was three years old. And his mother, in effect, launched a coup and managed to... um, be, to act as his regent, even though this was not a common thing for women to do. And as a result, all throughout his childhood, until he was finally considered to be an adult at the age of 16 or 17, there were uh, noble clans who were fighting over him. So that's really the basis of the first set of novels that I wrote, uh, The Legends of the Five Directions, which tracked the early period between 1534 and 38, when his mother was in control. And then this newest one, I moved into the 40s after his mother died, and um, both of his uncles were gone, and he was really under the will be kind to call it guardianship of whichever noble clan happened to be most in power at the time. And so there was a lot of tension, a lot of backbiting, poisonings and assassinations and all those things that are fun to write about in fiction. Oh, it, it's always fascinating to read your books. You open this one, Song of the Storyteller, when Luba is the advanced age of 51, look, looking back over her life, is someone well past 51. Can you explain, both of us are, can you explain why she felt so old? Well, she's living in the 16th century, and life expectancy then, especially for women, was somewhere around the age of 35 or 40. Now, that's a little bit skewed because if you made it past the age of five, um, your chances of living to a ripe old age um, were actually pretty good. Not too much different from now. People did live into their 80s. It's just that probably half the people in Russia at that time died before they were five. And then uh, childbirth was extremely dangerous for women. And so uh, many women in particular died before they reached the end of their childbearing years. Now, once they got there, they could live um, a long time, but she is looking around her and she's probably one of the oldest people. Um, the If you look at the ages, for example, of the Grand Princes, they were mostly in their mid-50s when they died because that's when people start to get serious health conditions and the medical system was lousy. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I forgot to ask you, why do you write under a pen name and who is C.P. Leslie? Well, Leslie, spelled this way, L-E-S-L-E-Y, is actually my middle name. Um, in Scotland, L-E-S-L-I-E is either a man's name or a surname. Uh, but a woman's name is spelled the way I spell mine. Now, I'm using it as a surname, um, but the C.P. is my real name, Carolyn Pouncey. And the reason that I write fiction under pen name is because... The academic stuff I do is very detailed manuscript uh, analysis, and I think there are probably a couple of dozen people on the planet who actually really want to read these comparisons of one version of a text versus another version of a text. And so uh, the pen name is not intended to conceal my identity. It's more like a signal that if you don't happen to be a um, Russian historian um, who yourself specializes in the 16th century, you might still want to read these books. Mm. Where 
as a historian, where did you find written accounts of the tests given to potential royal brides? And can you say a bit about bride shows? Okay, well, the bride shows are real, and they were really interesting. And um, they started with Ivan the Terrible's father, uh, who was married for the first time in, I think, 1505. And they continued up until the first marriage of Peter the Great in 1689. And between those two benchmarks, every single uh, Grand Prince Ozar had a bride show every time they married. And they were also held for some of the collateral princes, the spares in modern lingo of who were either, you know, Ivan's younger brother or... Um, his uncles, they all have bride shows. And the big thing was that Russia was at that time the main Eastern Orthodox Christian independent kingdom. And so they had a big thing, you know, religion was a lot more important than, than it is now. And they had a big thing that anyone who ruled them had to be also an Orthodox Christian. And most of the surrounding states were Catholic, and they were equally determined to remain Catholic. And so it was very hard for Russian princes to find brides. And so what they ended up doing was they adopted this custom, which was supposedly from uh, Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, of summoning girls from all over the country and then selecting the the best uh, to present to the czar, who then got to select from this chosen group, which had already been vetted for um, political loyalty and healthiness and good ancestry and probability of bearing children and all these other things that were important. So that we know. Um, But what actually happened during the bride shows, we don't know all that much. What we know about are the instances when things went wrong. And because the stakes for having your daughter or sister or whatever being declared the Tsaritsa were very high, uh, there was a lot of backbiting. And most of the incidents that I put in the story of people being poisoned and people being threatened and people having their hair tied too tight so that they fainted, those are actually things that happened to bridal candidates. But the tests and stuff like that, we really don't know. Um, there's a lot of um, there was some documentation, but most of what actually happened during the bride show was concealed because this is the Russian style of governance uh, then and even now. People outside the the realm of the the elite don't get to find out what's really going on. So we have a few foreigners' accounts, but they're. Um, they're writing their own kind of fiction, and we don't know how much of it was really accurate. Mm-hmm. Since you were discussing the uh, the Catholic versus the Orthodox Christian, I was wondering about Timur, Timur, who is one of Alexei's sons, the boy that Luba is in love with. His religion is Muslim, while his father is Christian. So how were religious differences like that accepted during the period? This is actually one of the the kind of unique things about uh, Muscovy. What is particularly in this period, later on they became much more, um, how should I put this, Uh, much less tolerant, I think. Although the tolerance of Islam was actually greater 
going forward even than tolerance of other religions, Judaism, for example, or any other form of Christianity besides Eastern Orthodox. But what had happened was that the Mongols under Genghis Khan conquered all of Russia just about in the 13th century and maintained uh, that control over the entire area through what's inaccurately known as the Golden Horde until the middle of the 15th century. So in this period, one of the things I was interested in writing about in these novels is that this is a period where power is tipping away from the Tatar Hanates, all of which the, the Golden Horde as a whole converted to Islam uh, with certain pagan holdovers. And so all of the Tatars that my characters encounter are Muslim. But uh, Alexei, one of the things that was happening is that as Russia became stronger, people who wanted to make a career in Russia did uh, sometimes convert to Christianity because that allowed them to marry and allowed to them to rise higher. And if they were, as Alexei is, the sons of Hans, that let them be incorporated. They were considered not quite equal to the royal family, but it was a coup for the Russians to, to win them over because they were the former conquerors. And so they could rise very high. And Alexei had run into trouble with the former... Um, boss is not the right word, the man to whom he owed allegiance. Um, and so he was on the run. And so he decided to do this. Uh, he converted to Christianity in order to marry Maria. Uh, but he did not force his son, who was from, in this case, a premarital relationship with a woman who was Muslim. He did not try to force his son to convert to Islam. And so that becomes one of the issues for Yuba because she it, it's both a benefit for her in that um, the rules are different if she marries a Muslim than if she marries a Christian. But it is a, an, she has, it's a decision that she has to make um, as to whether she's going to retain her religion or not. That, that part was fascinating. Well, reading the Song of the Storyteller a year after the previous installment made me want to go back and start at the beginning. One of my favorite characters, probably yours too, was Roxana, Roxana, who is now known as Juliana. So she's shown up in several of the books, and I loved her. Can you say more about her? Um, yeah, she's one of my favorite characters too. And the thing is, she started out as a complete uh, witch, frankly. She was so obnoxious in The Winged Horse. Um, and it was only about four-fifths of the way through uh, The Vermilion Bird that I started to realize that there were reasons why she was so cold and calculating. And so when I set out to write uh, this series, the, the whole point of this series was to pick up some of the characters who had appeared in The Legends of the Five Directions and whose stories I had planned to tell but that I didn't have room for. And so I thought, well, she has the most dramatic story, so I'll start with her. And I swear, she keeps horning her way in. I, I thought that I was going to be one and done with her, but she came back in book three, and then she came back in this one. And I did kind of intend her to be back because this one ends with this big wedding, right? And everybody comes in from all of the previous books. But... Um, and I keep thinking, well, she's off in Poland. She's not going to have a reason to come back, but she does. Um, and she is, she's just a really fun character to write because she is 
very um she's very modern really in her sensibilities um she um she had lived as a slave and she lived as a courtesan and she is um so she has a very down to earth um appreciation of what's realistic um and she is quite unscrupulous about um using her wiles on um some of the other characters who are um how should i put this um they're a little full of themselves and it's really fun to watch her <laughs> putting them down and and playing with them in effect um so yeah i i have a feeling she's probably going to be bad she she'll she'll maybe stay away for song of the steadfast um because she's on her way back to poland at the moment but i wouldn't lay any odds that she won't be back in a future book okay can you talk about the name changing like roxana is now known as Juliana, and at the uh, Yuba also has to change her name. Uh, could you say more about that? Yeah, it's actually for a fiction writer, it's really annoying that there is this custom. But the um, the general rule was that when you convert, changed your religion, and I think this is often true even now, but certainly in the 16th century, if you changed your religion, you were supposed to indicate that you were were um, this new self by taking a new name. And it also operated if, say, you took monastic vows, you would not keep your name. You would take a monastic name. So uh, with Nassan, who was the heroine of my first series, she converted to Christianity in order to save her, her family from this vendetta. And she was known as Arina by certain characters. But I didn't want to, I wanted to keep her name, um, her real name, uh, because she, uh, I, I just thought it was too confusing for readers, actually. So there were one or two characters, and gradually more and more of them shifted to using her original name. And then she went back to the step, and she just dropped the arena altogether. With um, Juliana, she nearly drove me nuts, because she actually had several names. She had a, her own original name, uh, and then she had this slave name, which was Roxolana. And then uh, she, when she converted to, to Catholicism, she adopted the name Juliana. So that's where that comes from. Uh, Alexei was originally uh, Tulpar, which is the name for the winged horse. But when he converted to Christianity, he became Alexei. And there the rationale was that he... Uh, because he had chosen it himself, unlike his younger sister, Nassan, he just switched altogether to Alexei. And it was good for him because he, his character really became, um, his good side really came out in those novels. And so he, he did kind of differentiate himself for where he had been in the earlier novel. But yes, if I had my druthers, none of them would ever change their names because it really does okay. become very confusing. <laughs> Okay. Why do both Yuba and her sister speak so ill of their father? Because their father is, um, his purpose in life is to increase, he is, a, he is sort of the quintessential uh, Russian nobleman uh, of the time, and that his entire reason for existing is to increase his own power and wealth and that of his lineage. But he interprets what 
is good for him is what's good for his lineage. And he is absolutely ruthless about using his children to advance his own interests. And he um, objects um, vociferously when they decide that they don't want to go along with it because they have plans and schemes of their own. He's one of these people who fuse with their offspring and basically see them as extensions of themselves. And both Maria and Lyuba have suffered personally as a result of that in earlier books. And so at this point, they're just completely jaded with him. Mm-hmm. There seems to be enormous wealth. Well, there is enormous wealth among the aristocratic families. How is that? Wait, no. The question is, from where is their wealth derived? Well, these old families uh, had land holdings. And in this period, they still had land that they could hold outright. They were constantly on a quest to expand their holdings because unlike the situation in Western Europe that we're all familiar with, the Russian aristocracy did not practice primogeniture. So if you were a boyar, which was the very highest rank of the untitled nobility, then um, every one of your sons would would receive a portion of your estate when you died. And every one of your daughters would receive a portion usually of goods rather than land um, when she married. And so if you had, say, six sons, then your estates would be divided in six. Now, the estates themselves were held by the families so they could be sort of moved around. But there was a lot of of the um, politicking and jockeying for positions were devoted to noblemen who were petitioning the czar for landed estates. And eventually they became estates that were conditional on service. And then the boyars found a way to make them those conditional estates not so conditional anymore. And so that that's really what's going on behind a lot of it. But the, the estates themselves come from the crown and they come from Moscow. And that's why people freak out if they get sent away from Moscow because they're essentially being sent away from the feeding trough. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of several divorces and remarriages among these families. How was that accepted at the time? Um. Well, the divorce was kind of scandalous. Uh, The Orthodox Church was different from the Catholic Church. It was possible to get divorced, but it was definitely not encouraged in the 16th century. It was a major scandal when Ivan the Terrible's father divorced his first wife because he said she was barren and then remarried Ivan the Terrible's mother. But... It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the case that you had to get um, the equivalent of an act of parliament as you did in Britain, even in the 19th century. What was more common was that people would give each other letters of divorce, which is what uh, Koshkin does to Juliana, where um, everybody says, okay, so as as far as we're concerned, we're not living together anymore. And um, she manages, because she's got the... the, uh, Polish queen behind her who's grateful to her, she manages to get that turned into a, a divorce that the Catholic, I think it's an annulment that the Catholic Church accepts so that she can later marry Felix. But um, Koshkin doesn't ever remarry. It's And it is kind of frowned upon. 
Okay. Interesting. So much of this is interesting. I have so many more questions, but we're sort of out of time. So I really want to know, um, when's the next book coming out? (laughs) That's what I want to know. Well, I hope that it's going to be next year at this time. Uh, The next book is, as you might guess from the cliffhanger ending, uh, Lyuba's friend Anna has run off with the man that she was betrothed to in the previous book and who has spent most of this book in a monastery because um, Anna's cousin Igor didn't want her to marry this guy for various reasons that are explained in the book. And so he engineered uh, Yuri's disgrace. And so the two of them have run off together and they have been giving me absolute fits because they, they're both very sweet, uh, obliging, well-behaved characters, which is kind of fatal for a novel. So, I'm trying to put in enough, um, you know, I've I've been trying to figure out the timeline and the political plot and how to to keep them enough on edge that they aren't completely boring. And I I think I'm starting to get a handle on it now. So I'm hoping that I will have a rough draft, um, which I'm feeding to my writers group and, you know, every two chapters or so to get their feedback. I'm hoping to have a rough draft by the summer. And if that's the case, then it'll come out next January. So you're saying he escapes from the monastery? He does. Okay. Just I just needed to know that. That's mm-hmm. it. That's good. Okay. Yeah, that, that comes out very early in the new book, so it's not really a, a spoiler. Oh, my God. What a wonderful visit to 16th century Russia. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the book tremendously. And wish you the best of luck on finishing the next one because I'm waiting. Okay, well, thank you. Yes, and 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 Yuri, some thoughts to be more cooperative. (laughs) I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Bye, Carolyn. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking to C.P. Leslie, a.k.a. Carolyn Pouncey, about the fifth novel in her Songs of Step and Forest series. Hope you all have a juicy novel to cuddle up with today and every day. Happy reading, everyone.